Who are the real people we consider our sages? Who were they in life? What is the legacy they left us? Join Rabbi Danny Saxton for the next hour as he explores the lives of our Torah giants, the spiritual geniuses who shaped the way we approach Judaism today. That's Focus on Our Sages right now on 101.9 High FM. Good afternoon. Welcome to Soul to Soul. And as always, a great honor and privilege to be with you on a Wednesday afternoon. And uh, today we're going to look at the Festival of Purim. And as we usually do, we try to take a historical perspective of um, Judaism and of the great sages within the Jewish people over the ages. And I think it would be of great benefit to us to view Purim through a historic lens and that will certainly give us an appreciation to what happened and enable us to relate to the power and the depth of Purim. I remember as a child, you know, Purim was always this little cute little fairy tale of the Queen uh, Esther and the evil King Achashverosh and Haman who wanted to destroy the Jews. It was very childish, my understanding and um, connection to Purim, but as I learned more and uh, when I was in Yeshiva, I was absolutely struck by the incredible power and depth of Purim and it transformed my understanding from that of a childish one and of a fairy tale to very significant events that enable us, that guide us and show us how to view the world, how to view history and how to see Hashem's hand in um, events that take place in the world. So Purim is not far away. Purim is next week. Uh, next Monday night, the 6th of March, is Purim. So next Monday, um, this coming Monday, uh, the 6th of March, is the fast of Esther, Tani's Esther. And the reason why we fast on Monday, on the day before Purim, because on the 13th of Adar, Esther instructed the Jewish people to fast and to pray to Hashem that her attempts to reverse this decree, which would uh, result in the annihilation of the Jewish people, would be successful. Her, her attempts to reverse it would be successful. And so Klai shall fast it, and therefore we do also fast. And the importance of that is that we understand and acknowledge that our success and that our protection and that our victory over our enemies is in the hands of Hashem. And depends on our spiritual merits. And therefore it's a very powerful act to fast and to pray to Hashem um, on the significant fast days. One of them being on Monday, the fast of Esther. And then the fast comes out in Johannesburg at 6.52. That comes in in Johannesburg at 4.54 in the morning. Six minutes to five in the morning. And comes out at 6.52 in the evening. So we have in Mincha, usually Mincha probably about quarter past six in most, most communities. And then we dive on Ma'arif at about 10 to 7. And then we read the Megillah. And uh, the Megillah, uh, th that's one of the first four mitzvahs of Purim. So on Purim, we have to fulfill four different mitzvahs, one of them being reading of the Megillah, both in the night and in the day. And we should hear the Megillah being read from a kosher Megillah sc scroll. So uh, find out what time the Megillah is being read at your local Orthodox shul. 
And uh, so we read the Megillah both in the night, on Monday night, and on Tuesday morning. That's the first of the four mitzvahs of Purim. The other mitzvahs that were performed in the day on Tuesday, on this coming Tuesday, is that we are all obligated to give matanos lev yoinim, which is um, gifts to the poor. So we celebrate Purim with our Purim suda, our Purim's meal, and so we want everybody within the Jewish community to have the ability to do so. And so there's a mitzvah on every single Jew to give to two poor people money that they can then afford to have their own suitors. The minimum would be 50 rand each. So everybody's got to give at least 100 rand, which should be distributed on the day. Um, I collect for the distribution of people. Um, and uh, I know the Hebrew Kedisha has a very big drive. So certainly online you could go to the site of the Hebrew Kedisha. And even today you could give your money and then it will be distributed on Purim. So you therefore fulfill your mitzvah on the day. So that's my Tazlev Yoinia. Each person needs to give uh, 50 rand times two. Uh, also then the, the third mitzvah of the day is Shalach Manos, Mishaloach Manos Ish El Re'ehu. We have to, we should be giving gifts as it says in the Megillah. Um, one to another, so we give at least one gift of two food items to one other person. Today, Shalach Manos has become like a big industry, and everybody gives hundreds, and that's not necessary. You can do so if you would like to, but rather spend your money, if you have money to dispose, uh, rather spend it on Matanas Devyonim, giving to the poor, than spending too much on Shalach Manos. But the mitzvah is to each person has to give one item uh, one gift of two food items to at least one other person. That also should be done in Purim. Um, and then the fourth mitzvah of Purim is the Purim Suda. So we are all obligated to have a meal, to have bread, to wash for the bread at the meal, and to preferably have meat and have wine, and to celebrate the miracles of Purim, to celebrate God's salvation and saving of the Jewish people, and we do that. Uh, our sages are very wise. We do that. There's no greater way to celebrate than to have a delicious meal. So we're all obligated on Tuesday, since it's a work day, so people are at work. But we have the Suda. As long as you start the Suda in the day before sunset, so most places start the Suda at about 4 o'clock on Tuesday afternoon. But please make sure that you do so before sunset on Tuesday afternoon. Um, sunset in Johannesburg on Tuesday, the 7th of March. I'm actually looking it up right now. As I'm speaking, so sunset is um, is at 6.33, right? 6.32 actually it says in the calendar. So you have to have started your meal at least by, you know, 6 o'clock. But well, most places do it a little bit earlier at 4 o'clock. And, uh, and that's the, the fourth mitzvah of Purim that we all need to fulfill is to have a suda, have a banquet, have a meal. And there a lot of the Purim store, story is focused and centered around meals and around banquets. Okay, so now what I want to do is to view Purim through a historical lens, and that will make the events more real for us. They'll transform it from being this Harry Potter fairy tale to actually real events that took place in the world. And through the story of Purim, we see Hashem's hand guiding human events. We see what we call Hashkacha Pratis, uh, divine providence, that within regular human affairs, Hashem orchestrates events in an extraordinary way. Hashem did so in Purim and Hashem does so all the time. And that's very much the case in our lives too. 
So through our understanding what happened with Purim, we had an insight into Hashem's hand in our lives too. And we're supposed to write our own Megillah. Just as the Megillah describes the events that happened at the time, and when we see them all in unison and together, we see that it was completely guided and orchestrated by Hashem. And then we have the ability to write our own Megillah and see how Hashem has guided and has orchestrated and has controlled the events in our life and given us the opportunities that we have and the circumstances that we have. So the story of Purim took place in the year 368 before the common era. There's a bit of a discussion amongst historians. Um, some said it took place 166 years before. I won't go into all the details of where those uh, discrepancies come from. But the main Jewish sources tell us that we actually work backwards, that we know that the second temple was destroyed in 70 of the common era, and the Gemara tells us that the second temple era was 420 years, which means that the second temple was built in 350 before the common era. And the Gemara says the Purim story took place 18 years before the building of the second temple, which was 368 before the common era. We know that um, Eretz Israel is in a very interesting place geographically because um, in the ancient world there was always two great empires. There was the empire to the north of Israel and the empire to the south of Israel. The empire to the south was the Egyptian empire. The empires to the north were the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians. And Israel found itself in a very strategic place um, on the trade route between these two great empires. As uh, one historian famously said, that Israel is a wonderful place in a very bad neighborhood. So we often found ourselves being conquered by these different empires, either the Northern Empire or the Southern Empire. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. Welcome back. And we are discussing Purim from a historical perspective. Uh, the story of Purim took place in 368 before the Common Era. The first temple was destroyed in 420 before the Common Era by the Babylonians. Um, the Babylonian area was what today is the artificial country of Iraq. And the Babylonians, they were in the fertile crescent between the Tigris and the Euphrates. And when they destroyed the temple, they exiled the Jewish people. About 90% of the Jewish people went to Babel, went to Babylonia, were exiled to Babylonia. About 10% went south and went to Egypt with the prophet Yirmiyahu. The Babylonians were then defeated not long after by the Persians. And the Persians were a different people, a different ethnic and cultural group. They had different gods. Um, and they, uh, they then took over this great empire from the Babylonians. And um, they were great soldiers. They were a very powerful um, army, the Persians. And they now destroyed the um, the uh, Babylonians. So it's interesting to note that the first temple was destroyed. It wasn't destroyed out of religious reasons. It was destroyed out of political reasons. It was a, the proximity of Israel to the south, to the Egyptian empire, uh, was the reason why there was a national 
and they were a national enemy as opposed to a religious enemy. The real religious persecution only really came with monotheism and with exclusive monotheism, like Christianity and like Islam. They say that you know it's, a, a, it's our way or the highway, but there wasn't religious persecution at the time at that time at the time of the destruction of the first temple. So the Persians are now a very powerful nation, and they control the entire region, um, what the Megillah calls Mihodu at Kush. Hoidu is Turkey, is, uh, even then it was Turkey. Kush, some people mistakenly say it's Ethiopia, but it's not Ethiopia. Actually, there's an area, there's a region in Afghanistan, in eastern Afghanistan, called Kushim, which is probably what the Megillah is referring to. So the, the empire, that empire was absolutely massive and covered the entire region of the Middle East. The emperor then at the time, as the Megiddo says, ruled 127 countries of this massive empire. And the Jews now are, 90% of the Jewish world is exiled to Babylonia. And in a short span of 50 years, the Jew, Jews assimilate into Babylonian society. You might say, how could that be? How could it be so quick? Well, just look at um, American Jewry in the last 50 years. And you see the rates and levels of assimilation. In the UK, it's similar as well. So it was no different back then. And the Jews very quickly wanted to be a part of and assimilate into Babylonian society. Um, the original Jews that were exiled, they wept, they cried as they remembered Zion and Jerusalem. They bit off their thumbs in order not to play the harp for their Babylonian captors. As David Melech writes in Tehim, it says, How can we see, sing the songs of God on this foreign land? That, that was the perspective of the first generation. You know, like they say, the first generation still spoke Yiddish. The second generation became Babylonians. The third generations went to the prophets, Yechezkel, and they said to him, we quit. We want out. This is in the 12th chapter of Yechezkel. And they said, Kachol Hagoyim base Israel. Like all the nations of the Jewish people. We don't want Torah. We don't want mitzvahs. We want to be like the rest of the world. We want to be like the Babylonians. How often have we seen that within Jewish history? That the Jews, um, move away from our divine covenant and choose to assimilate with the nations of the world. The prophet doesn't know what to answer them. And he then has a dream. And Hashem says to him, tell the people that this is never going to happen. They'll never be like the nations of the world. And as the Gomorrah says, that Hashem told the prophet that I'll set up circumstances in which they will see how different they are. And again, how many times have we seen this pattern within Jewish history where the Jews turn their back on Hashem and on the Torah and uh, things don't turn out good for the Jewish people when that happens. And Hashem sets up events that show that the Jewish people can never integrate into the nations and will always be different with a divine mission to fulfill. So either we choose to see that and embrace that or we rebel against that and Hashem forces us into a situation where we see that we are different from the nations of the world. And so the Jewish people become part of this great Persian empire. They become wealthy, they spread out, and they... Um, are found wherever there is economic opportunity across the breadth of the empire. The king then does an interesting thing. He wants to consolidate his power, 
and he marries for political purposes. The king was a Hashverosh, and he uh, he came through the ranks. He was doesn't come from royal lineage. He doesn't he doesn't have blue blood. Obviously, a very good politician, and he climbs um, the ranks of Persian society to eventually become king. And he now wants to consolidate with the Babylonians, and therefore chooses a Babylonian princess as his bride. We see this is very common within the running of kingdoms. So for example, we often saw in Europe that there were marriages between different countries. Let's say, for example, the, the prince of France will marry the princess of Austria in order that the Habsburgs will be an ally. Um, that is really how most royal marriages um, were conducted till today. Not very romantic, is it? So the king, Achashverosh, marries this, this princess of Babylonia who was the granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar. Her name is Vashti. And that results in the Babylonian Empire being absorbed quite easily within the Persian Empire. The king, like most kings of the ancient world, was a, a megalomaniac. He was an alcoholic. He was a big womanizer. He saw the whole uh, kingdom as his domain, which it was. And uh, as the Romans uh, call it, the Romans would say that we have to give the people bread and circuses. We have to feed the people bread so they have food, and we have to provide them with entertainment in order to keep them busy and to stop them from thinking about what's going on. Um, and so the king does so. He has his own version of bread and circuses, and he um, he sponsors a huge banquet within the uh, kingdom in order to solidify his power and his rule and uh, with delicious food you know as they say the secret to the success of a shul is the kiddush um, many a shul um, uh, finds uh, it's a very important part of their community is the kiddush uh, marshal included and so the king hosts this massive banquet it takes place over six months he invites all the different representations and ethnic groups from the kingdom they all represented with, with their favorite foods. Even the Jews are invited. The Gemara says the food was kasha l'mahadri. The best heksha possible because he wants the Jews, also one of the groups within the kingdom, to participate. Um, the king takes out his best finery for the banquet. The Babylonians destroyed te the first temple and brought the kalim, the vessels from the first temple, with them into Babylonia. The Persians who take over the empire have access to those vessels, and the king brings them out and displays them at his grand banquet. And the Jews participate in the banquet because the Jews are, want to be a part of society. They're invited by the king. And so they also um, participate in this. And uh, spiritually speaking, that was a very disastrous thing for the Jewish people to do. Because it represented what we call a nituk, a disconnection from Hashem. For the first time in Jewish history, the Jews now are associating themselves with this non-Jewish culture, this non-Jewish society. And uh, they even are reveling in their celebrations when the kalim, the vessels of the Beis HaMikdash, are being brought out and, and are being mocked. So it was a, 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 was a very serious indictment upon the Jewish people. To participate in the Suda of Achashverosh, and Nene Misudas Shul Oser it says that they enjoyed 
and celebrated in that Suda of King Ahasuerosh. And so there's a terrible spiritual decree in heaven that is now um, created against the Jews as a result of them assimilating into Babylonian society and not wanting to observe the Torah mitzvahs and now being a part of this banquet of the king. The king at the Suda is engaged in, is engaged in the, what we call, I suppose in the modern day terms would be called locker talk and he locker room talk and he, uh, he sh- wants to show off that he is the greatest man, the most powerful man in the kingdom, has access to all the women in the kingdom and that his bride, Vashti, is the most beautiful woman in all of the kingdom. This is his trophy wife that he wants to now display to the participants of the banquet. And so he orders the queen to appear in Keser Hamalchus, it says in the Megillah, wearing the crown of the of the royal family. And uh, the Vulnagon explains that it says in Keser Hamalchus because that's all he wanted her to display was just the Keser and nothing else. So she should display naked in front of everybody. Uh, usually Vashti wouldn't be bothered by that, but we see um, Hashem's hand involved in e- each part of the story, as we're going to show. And uh, Vashti had a mysterious skin disease at that time, skin um, infection, and therefore her skin, she had a very bad rash, and that's why she refused to appear. Now, the king is embarrassed by this, this all-powerful king with his trophy wife, who refuses to appear in front of the uh, the people at the banquet. And so the king is very angry. The king has a very volatile personality. He's unstable. The king's yeah, advisors step in, and the advisors are always uh, advising the wrong thing. Why do they advise the wrong thing? Because they're so close to the seat of power that they all have their own agenda. They have their own political interests at heart. And so what are they, um, what do they want to do? They want now the queen to be removed so they could put forward and propose their family, their daughter, their cousin, their relative to be queen. So they advise the king and they say to the king, how could you allow for such a thing to happen in the kingdom? It sends a very bad message to all the women in the kingdom that they could rebel against and refuse the requests of their husbands. And therefore, you have no choice but to set an example and to um, execute this, your wife, the queen, for disobeying and embarrassing the king publicly. And so they say that um, they say, well, you know what we should do? The solution to the problem is to replace her with another queen and to have a pageant, a royal pageant, in which all the eligible woman could be presented to the king and then the king could now select a new queen. So the king likes the idea. The king likes pageants because he gets to see all the beautiful women of the kingdom and he gets to try them out. Every night he has a different woman in the palace. And so the king says, what a great idea. And so he executes the queen and he um, agrees to this idea of having a royal pageant. So now up to now it seems like this is just normal palace intrigue. This is how these are the events that happen in most kingdoms. Um, but we'll see how Hashem's hand 
is guiding events and orchestrating the circumstances in order to bring out what needs to be done um, in history. So there's another subplot over here, another layer, and that is Mordechai. Mordechai is a Jew. Mordechai is one of the greatest Jews alive at the time. He's a very holy man. He is a member of the Sanhedrin. And um, the Gemara says that Mordechai has a barber. His barber's name is Haman. And Haman takes a disliking to Mordechai. We're not sure why, but he, he from day one doesn't like Mordechai, perhaps because he's a Amalek and an anti-Semite. But anyway, so Haman um, was Mordechai's barber in the early days. Haman then is a very manipulative, a very streetwise individual, and he somehow works his way into the court of the king, and he becomes a advisor to the king. He wins the king's trust. He's a very good politician, and the king takes a liking to him. Um, Hitler, too, was a very smart individual. Anybody thinks Hitler was not smart, they're mistaken. Hitler was brilliant, and the way he came to power, the way the Nazis wrestled power in Germany, and uh, many of the uh, powerful people in Germany thought that they, if Hitler became the chancellor, so he, they would control him and they would, it would bring stability to the country. But the opposite happened. Hitler actually controlled them and became the, the dictator, the all-powerful dictator of Germany without any opposition. Um, so Haman too was a very manipulative, brilliant individual. And he now wins favor in the eyes of the king. There was, so that's, there's Mordechai, there's Haman. Haman doesn't like Mordechai. Haman becomes a very powerful political figure in the kingdom. And then with this beauty pageant's going on, and of all the women in the kingdom, by the way, the king also has a harem of 900 women, and he has this pageant, and all the women are being brought to him. And of all the women in the kingdom, the one that the king favors, the one that steals the heart of the king, is this Jewish girl named Esther. And, you know, it's absolutely bizarre. So, uh, obviously, she was spotted by um, some of the um, agents of the king, and she was brought to the palace. Uh, you know, you can't refuse the king. If you refuse the king, you, you straight away are executed. You know, this was uh, these are all life and death situations for the subjects uh, within the kingdom. And so she's brought to the king. The king chooses her to be his queen, which is absolutely bizarre. And she's the niece of Mordechai. And Mordechai realizes, Mordechai Chaps is a very holy spiritual man. And he comes to the understanding and realization that it must be that Hashem's hand is at work over here. Because how else would it be that the base Yaakov girl ends up in the palace and ends up being queen? And he mentions to Esther and says, don't reveal your um, your lineage. Don't tell the king where you came from. He has his reasons for that, Mordechai. So the king then promotes Haman to be one of his most trusted advisor. Haman gets carried away with himself. Haman thinks that he's, you know, he's... Quick rise to power um, means that he's untouchable and invincible. And often these these megalomaniacs get this. They begin they begin to believe their own propaganda, and they think that they're untouchable and they think they're beyond reproach. And that's happened in history with many of these um, anti-Semitic dictators. 
that they, they lose touch with reality, which actually is the cause of their downfall. So, so too with Haman. And he decrees that when he appears in the streets, everybody has to bow down to him. And so, um, that is the case. And everybody bows down to, um, to Haman when they see him, save one individual. And that is Mordechai. Mordechai refuses to bow because the Gemara says he was wearing Avodazor around his neck. Now they were heterim, some rabbonim allowed it, some didn't, but Mordechai wouldn't do that. He felt that it was wrong. He refuses to bow. And so of all the millions that are bowing down to Haman on a daily basis, one person doesn't bow to him, and that drives Haman absolutely crazy, absolutely nuts. And uh, he can't tolerate such a thing. And therefore, he decides that he's going to um, act in a very decisive manner, and um, and therefore he is on a mission to destroy Mordechai. But not only Mordechai, also all the people of Mordechai. Mordechai represents all of his people, the Jewish people, and now Haman is hell-bent on wiping out and destroying the Jewish people. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. We're discussing the Purim story from a historical perspective. And Haman can't deal with the fact that Mordechai, although there are millions of people each day bowing down to him, thousands each day bowing down to him, in the capital of Shushan, one refuses to do so, and this drives Haman absolutely nuts. In fact, the Gomorrah says, Haman minayim. Where do we see Haman mentioned in Torah? We, we have a principle in Judaism that everything that happens in the world is actually in the blueprint, which is the Torah. So you'll find anything in the Torah, and that usually gives insight into um, that situation, that personality. All of our names, our Hebrew names, if they're proper Hebrew names, will be some in the Torah, and that reflects our personalities. So the Gemara asks appropriately, Haman min minayim. And the Gemara answers and says, quotes the Pasuk in Boratius that says, Hamin ha'etz ashe'amati lo tuchel. So it says in the beginning of the Torah that Hashem instructs Adam that from the, the, this tree you can't eat. So it's the same letters. Haman is Heimemnun and Hamin is the same letters, Heimemnun. But Chazal said there's a very deep lesson over here that Hashem said to Adam Arishon, to Adam, you can eat from any tree in the garden. And there were thousands of fruit trees in the gardens, all the most uh, delicious species of fruit. There's only one. The Eitzadas is the one you can't eat from, right? That one you can't eat from. And that's the one that he wanted. That's how we human beings are. We, th- that which we can't have, we want. But we have so much, we don't focus on what we have, we focus on what we don't have. You know, like the rabbi in the shul, he's got a big, beautiful shul with many, many people, and he's, he, he's not happy because this one and this one and this one's not there. But what about all the ones that are there? They're, we all like that, aren't we? So it's the same with Haman. That's what the Torah is telling us, that Hamina it's, it's the same mentality is not having the ability to focus on the good, on, on the gl- glass, not half full, but the glass 99% full. And that's the case in all of our lives. We have so much blessing. We have so much abundance. We have so many incredible things in our lives, but we all just focus on what we don't have. We focus on the negative. So that's this instinct within a human being, which is the source of, we see it in Haman very clearly. And so Haman says, I'm going to 
destroy these people. He's the first anti-Semite. Based on one individual Jew, he destroys the whole people. And he says, men, woman, child, I'm going to destroy them all in one day. Um, he says, this is a cancer in our society. We have to destroy each and every one of them to the last cell. So it sounds familiar, isn't it? It's a, um, the accusation of the anti-Semites throughout the ages. And so he comes up with a great plan, Haman. He says, you know what? Um, it's always a rule that every government doesn't have enough money. Isn't it the same with South Africa? That, you know, everything is completely collapsing. The inefficiency, the corruption is, is, uh, everywhere apart from SARS. You know, that's the institution that's well run because that's the source of income. That's the income that gives the government the money to steal and to plunder and to carry out their corruption. So it's, so that's a general principle that every government is short of money. So Aman comes up with this great plan. He says to Achashverosh, he says, you know what? We, short of money, what was our deficit last year? Our deficit was 10,000 silver talents. So I've got a plan. There's a group of people that we need to take care of, and we will be able to take their money, and that will cover the deficit. The Nazis ran the last years of the German war effort with from the Jewish money that they stole. And although there are reparations, the reparations are small proportion of the millions that were stolen from the Jews of Europe by the Nazis, which funded their war effort. So, so too, he goes to the king, and he says to the king, Haman says to Achashverosh, he says to them, I have a means to cover our deficit, to make a lot of money for the kingdom. And there's this people, this insidious people, and they're everywhere, you know, wherever you look. They're in Bloemfontein, they're in um, East London, they are in the Western Cape. They are in Port Elizabeth. Wherever you look, they are there, these people. And they don't respect you. They're not loyal to your kingdom. They have a strange day of rest. They don't um, believe in our gods. They don't eat from the king's table. They, they won't eat at your banquet. And if, if a fly falls in their wine, they take the fly out and they still drink the wine. But if you touch their wine, if the king touches their wine, they'll pour out the wine. They're not loyal. We don't need them. They're a threat to the kingdom because they'll support our enemies. And so they're a vermin in our midst that needs to be removed, needs to be destroyed. And we will get their money in order to cover our deficit. So just like the Nazis, he says, they're an absolute vermin that need to be dealt with. Although he didn't explicitly say to Hashverish, we need to exterminate them. He said, we, we will remove them and take their money. And Hashverish says, you know what? I like your plan. I like your, your thinking, Haman. Um, so, listen, I've got a busy day. I've got a, a big golf game going on in a, in a few minutes. So here's the signet ring, and you can do as you wish, and you will set up this decree. And so Haman does so, and uh, he sets up the destruction of the Jews. He draws lots, comes out the 14th of Adar. That will be the day that he and his supporters will go out and destroy the Jews, and he'll pay heavily, he'll pay very, very generously to anybody who participates in the destruction of these people. And as we say, every generation we have these antisemites that want to destroy us. We see Farrakhan in America says, they're a vermin, they need to be removed from society. So it's uh, not unique, but in every generation we see it, as we say in the Haggadah. So that's what's going on. Hashem's hand is very much at play, as always. And we see that continues the other subplot. Mordechai is in the palace, and he hears of a attempt 
to assassinate the king. He knew many languages on the Sanhedrin that they knew many languages. These, there were two king's guards that thought were speaking a language that they didn't think Mordechai would understand. He overheard them. He understood and he warns the secret service that there's a plot at hand to destroy the king. And they uh, investigate and they find that it's true. And Mordechai is written in the book of Chronicles that he is going to be saving the king. Now, um, Mordechai then hears of the decree that Haman wants to wipe out every single Jew, wants to annihilate the final solution in, in, in Shushan, that he wants to destroy all of the Jewish people in all 127 provinces. And so he uh, is very concerned about this. And he takes the, he takes it very, very seriously. And he then approaches Esther. So please stay with us. We'll see what Mordechai says to Esther. Historic words which apply to every single one of us throughout the generations. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. We're looking at Purim from a historical perspective, and we see that Haman has his decree. He's given free reign by the king to destroy the Jewish people. Mordechai gets wind of this. It becomes a public decree. Everybody finds out the Jews are absolutely distraught. And so Mordechai realizes that Hashem put Esther in the palace in order to be in a position to save her people, to save the Jewish people. And he goes to her, and he says to Esther these, well, he actually sends it via messenger. The words that should ring in the ears of every Jew. He says to Esther, Esther, it's obviously it's not easy for her to do anything because you know you've got this king who's very who's very volatile and Esther's frightened to step out of place and you know how could she uh, make these suggestions to the king when he's agreed to this decree of Haman? So he says, Mordechai sends the message that if im tacharish im acharish tacharishi, if you remain silent at this moment. He says that the redemption and saving of the Jews will come from somewhere else. Um, but you and your father's house will be lost. In other words, this is your chance. This is why you're here. This is your opportunity to make a difference and to contribute to the Jewish people. And if you don't choose not to do it, Hashem will save the Jewish people some other way. Hashem will always save the Jewish people. And um, because Netzach is all, Shaker, even though we might be harmed and damaged and suffer, which unfortunately has been the case through history, but close to all survive. And if, if you choose not to be the vehicle and the means to do it, it'll come from some other place. And so these words very, very deeply impact on Esther, and she comes up with an elaborate scheme. And these are words that we should all think about and hear and let impact in our lives, that we are we all have our moment and opportunity to contribute to the Jewish people. And when that comes, we need to be ready for it and we need to step up for it because this is it. This is the big chance that we have to impact on the Jewish people and that will remain with us for eternity. And if we turn it down and say, no, choose somebody else, I can't do it. It's going to uh, rock the boat too much and ruffle too many feathers. So in heaven, they will remember that, and we would have missed our opportunity. A very powerful lesson for every single Jew throughout the ages. And so Haman builds the gallows for Mordechai. The king can't sleep at night, 
and he calls out for the chronicles. They read to him that Mordechai saved him with his assassination attempt. He says that we reward him. They said, no, he said, well, we need to do something. At that point, Haman comes in, which is coming in late at night to the king, which shows his arrogance and his overconfidence. And he says to the king, the king says to him, what should we do to somebody who we need to honor and reward? He thinks who else is going to be honored by me? Who else is going to get the Oscar by me? I'm the one. So he says we need to parade them through the streets with the clothes of the king and with the horse of the king. And then the penny begins to drop for Ahasuerus. And he sees Haman has aspirations to take over the crown and to become the king. And Haman says, do that to Mordechai. And you lead him through the streets and say, Kacha this is what you should do to a person that a king uh, wants to honor. And he, he, Mordechai was no threat. He knew that Mordechai did not have any aspirations at all to be the king. And, so, and now Esther has been thinking and been mulling over those words that Mordechai sent to her. And she was a very brilliant woman, Esther. And she saw that Haman had these aspirations. And so she sets up this elaborate scheme that she has one blank banquet and another banquet. And after the king is uh, sufficiently lubricated and has in, had enough to drink, she says, there's somebody who wants to destroy my people and wants to destroy me, she says to the king. And the king says, who is it? And she says, Haman hara hazeh, this evil man Haman. The king is absolutely um, uh, crazy at this. Uh, these words that she says. She, he's very, very angry. He steps out to get some fresh air. Haman then begs the queen that she shouldn't uh, 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 talk badly about him to the king and, and turn the king against him. And a malach, it says, the midrash, the malach pushes this, Esther sitting down, pushes Haman onto Esther. The king returns and sees that he's fallen on top of her. And the king says, not only do you want to take the kingdom from the but take the queen as well. And the king says, Haman needs to be the one who's hung on those gallows. And so it's all turned around, everything is turned around from the Jews being destroyed and being in such a terrible situation to uh, then is a, the decree has to be rescinded, which it can't. So there's another decree, a new decree, which were the laws of those days. And so the new decree says the Jews can defend themselves. There's a civil war and the Jews defeat their enemies and come out victorious. So we see it's just an incredible, breathtaking view of how events work in the world, how Hashem is controlling events, how the Jewish people really determine their destiny. Determine their destiny. When we turn away from Hashem, rebel against Hashem, so then things come back at us much harder. It comes to bite us much more severely than uh, we would possibly imagine, and we face complete destruction. And when we turn back to Hashem, so Hashem will orchestrate things in a way that will lead to our salvation and our redemption. So that is the power of Purim. That is the relevance of Purim. It's, it teaches us that God is evolved, involved in human affairs, that they seem like regular historic events, but really it is Hashem's hand that is guiding the process and that is leading the way. And based on the choices of Klai Yisrael, whether we want to embrace Hashem and serve Hashem and live up to our holy destiny as the people of Hashem, to serve Hashem, bring Hashem's light into the world, so then things will unravel in a way that facilitate that process. When we turn against that and reject our covenant with God, so then things turn very ugly for the Jewish people and Hashem shows us that we don't have the ability to um, turn away from our covenant, to, to abandon our responsibility and our destiny and, and we then have the ability to, to re-embrace 
what our purpose is in this world. That's the power, that's the depth, and that is the incredible lessons that we learn from the wonderful uh, festival Chag of Purim, wishing everybody a Freiliche Purim, a wonderful Purim. Purim is a beautiful celebration where we celebrate Hashem's salvation and celebrate our responsibility to bring God's light into the world. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.